Hello, cyber friends. This is Chatting Cyber, and I'm your host, Mark Shine. This podcast focuses on how companies can help qualify and quantify the cost of a data breach. Chatting Cyber features some of the most well-respected privacy and cyber experts in the world. Join the conversation with business leaders, government agencies, and cyber experts to learn more about how and why they got into this ever-changing field that we call cyber risk. Hello, cyber colleagues. I'm Mark Schein, National Co-Chair of the Cyber Center of Excellence here at Marsh McLennan Agency. And today we have a true cyber celebrity with us, John Wallach. John, thanks for joining. Hey, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So, John, uh, my first question is, you know, how does a guy that was born and raised in New Jersey end up becoming the team leader of the privacy and security group at one of the best law firms in the Northeast, uh, being Gibbons? Well, thank thank you for that. It's very kind of you. But, uh, you know, I'll start, and it sounds a little cliche, but I always wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, for as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, I grew up in Clifton, New Jersey, uh, just north of where I'm at now, and one of six kids. My uncle was a lawyer, and I just always admired him and what he was doing and what he was involved in. And uh, you know, it's just one of those things. Like I said, it sounds cliche, but uh, my life progressed in that direction. I, after high school, I went to Boston College, studied finance in the School of Management up there, and you know, thought I'd go into business and do business law. And uh, then I, after I finished college, I worked for about a year or two, and I thought, all right, I really do have to go to law school and get this uh, get this under my belt, um, and just loved law school. Uh, after I finished, I clerked for a federal district court du- judge in New Jersey, uh, Nicholas Politan. It was a great experience. He was a great mentor, a great coach, um, and uh, really kind of set the trajectory of uh, where I was going in terms of just legal practice and, and being willing to be a problem solver and, and get out there and, and help people and help corporations. Um, in private practice, uh, my path to cyber was a winding, circuitous route, uh, no question. Uh, went to uh, what at the time was Crummy Del Dale, Dolan, Griffinger, and Vecchione, which was the predecessor to Gibbons PC, mm-hmm. and um, was working on commercial litigation, securities actions, uh, and the like. And as a young associate, got staffed on one of those big, massive environmental insurance coverage matters that were so popular in the late 80s and early 90s. And um, man, at that time, that was hard litigation. And I don't mean difficult, I just mean hard, pounding, every day going at it litigation. And I enjoyed it, I gotta tell you. I, you know, The subject matter was interesting, insurance coverage, CGL policy interpretation, contract interpretation, all of those types of things, I found it very challenging, very exciting and interesting. And, um, you know, so one case after another, after another, we were uh, up to the appellate division a couple of times. We went up yeah. to the Supreme Court of New Jersey a couple of times on some various coverage decisions and uh, just really enjoyed it. Really, really enjoyed it. That was kind of through the 90s. And then, uh, of course, I got involved in the Y2K bubble, which was never a bubble. Um, and, and that didn't dissolve on January 2, but it pretty much was wrapped up by January 3 uh, of 2000. And um, from there, but in the course of that, though, I think uh, it was kind of a peak of interest because that was law and counseling. So we've taken statutes, taken regulations, figuring out what the problems are and counseling going forward, as well as risk mitigation and the insurance coverage aspect. 
Um, so it really started the combination of the two worlds that I practice in right now, which is privacy and cyber and insurance coverage. Um, and that going forward, you know, in the, in the 2000s, it was network security issues. It wasn't cyber. Um, but we went forward on that and I was doing some counseling of clients, following the coverage cases, getting involved in coverage issues, talking about manuscript policies and, and the like with respect to those risks. CGL, crime, I mean, you know the drill. Um, and that all evolved up into where I'm at today, which is that blending of the two worlds of insurance coverage and cyber. Um, so that, you know, we, we offer a full range of privacy services from incident response to policies and procedures externally and externally, um, compliance um, in a variety of different areas, including HIPAA, um, and also doing third-party contracting and helping negotiate privacy terms. That's becoming such a big issue now, right? And yeah. vetting all the vendors and contractors. Um, transactional due diligence and advising uh, my corporate partners and their clients in the context of corporate transactions and what privacy risks are apparent and are privacy risks appropriately addressed within, with respect to target, target companies. And most recently, uh, interestingly enough, uh, it's kind of developed into now a little bit of a focus on biometrics. Um, I've written a few articles uh, in the New Jersey Law Journal, the New York Law Journal. I'm counseling clients with respect to their biometrics practices um, and procedures because it's an ever-increasing area. It's coming into every aspect of life and um, clients are becoming more focused on it. Um, the, the regulatory regime is like everything else in this area, Mark, it's a patchwork quilt of regulations on all levels, on all issues. Um, so again, it kind of continues that exciting, challenging, interesting, cutting edge aspect that first got me involved in insurance coverage going all the way back to the, to the nineties when I joined the firm and moving forward. John, do you see any similarities in terms of the uncertainties uh, clients are facing back when, you know, Y2K was kind of the, the hot topic and now with the kind of the regulatory landscape, kind of that same uncertainty? Is there that same kind of, um, are they coming to you and asking similar types of questions? I'm just curious if there's any parallel between kind of Y2K and what we're seeing right now. Well, yeah, there is parallels in terms of regulatory and uncertainty. Um, the Y2K risk was kind of the fear of the unknown, right? What was going to happen if my computer system completely goes down? That's a simple statement or a simplistic statement about the, the issue, but it, that was kind of the fear of the unknown. And are we able to address the unknown in the event of, in, in the event that the wheels completely fall off? Whereas here in the cyber area, in the privacy area, it's how do I, one, meet my compliance obligations, and then two, mitigate the risks that I have, whether it be a risk of uh, hackers or a risk of malware or a risk of unauthorized disclosure and access or the risk of litigation. Uh, and, and litigation comes out of nowhere for no reason at all. I mean, we see that in the biometric area, particularly. It doesn't matter whether you're an employer trying to do the right thing with respect to employees or um, you know, a software company or a, a public venue trying to enhance security. The biometrics is all over the place. And, and again, it's that risk that you're trying to appropriately address. That clients come and say, I, I need help because the, the, the regulations are all over the map. 
So, John, I, you know, I have clients come up to me all the time and they say, Mark, they say, you know, what are we talking about biometrics? This isn't the future. What are some commercial applications that you're seeing um, with respect to clients that you're, you know, perhaps speaking to with how they're engaging uh, uh, biometric technology into more commercial applications? Well, it, you know, it, it's, it's everywhere, right? And so let's start with a definition. Biometrics is any physical or behavioral characteristic that can be measured, that can be used to identify an individual. So physical or behavioral characteristic, characteristic that's capable of being measured that can be used to identify an individual. And that's almost anything. I mean, simple example, fingerprint, right? Retina scan, um, your gait, your walking, right? Facial recognition. Um, it's not a photograph, but it can be a facial scan of a photograph. And that what that's what got TikTok and Facebook and all the other online social media platforms in trouble uh, because they didn't comply with the laws. Sure. Um, so, you know, it, it is the future, Mark. I mean, we're here, we're now, and it's increasing. And a lot of real practical concerns, but also practical benefits can be realized through biometrics. You know, the privacy advocates say you're violating our rights. There's a lot, you know, there's a lot of false positives. There's a lot of false identification. It's being misused by government actors and the like. The, the, the commercial advocates are saying, this is a great tool when used properly, when used properly, this is a great tool that can really enhance our operations, can enhance security, can do all of the things that people really demand. I mean, think about it. Since 2013, you could use biometrics to get on your phone, sure. right? Um, you know, one of the most recent <laughs> striking things um, that's being developed now is security software for, that's being implemented primarily in the Midwest, interestingly enough, um, for stores after, to, to, to fight crime. And after hours, what was happening was, um, you know, the crime rate would skyrocket for 24-7 uh, type stores. Companies have developed software that locks down the store, you scan your face, at the entrance, it compares it to a database. And if, you, if you're in the database, you don't come in. If you're not in the database, you can come in. And, you know, as you could imagine, there are completely a whole bunch of issues that go along with it. But crime in those stores that have used this software has dropped precipitously. Wow. So, you know, lots of benefits, lots of concerns, though, no question about it. So I would imagine that this is a fairly fluid uh, regulatory landscape. Um, can you provide you know, maybe some overview of the existing biometric regulations that are currently in place around the US? Sure, and you know, this, as you said, fluid is, is an understatement. I mean, we've got that patchwork quilt is, is multi-layer and multifaceted. Um, you've got federal action or inaction, some might say, state action, <laughs> state action or overreaction, and even on the municipal level. I mean, we have cities that are adopting ordinances with respect to businesses within their uh, jurisdictional limits. Um, but basically three tiers of regulation. First is biometric specific regulation that is intended to address only biometric information and the collection, use, processing, and storage of biometric information. 
The second tier is biometrics within the definition of personal information and the regulatory regimes that are being adopted across the country, like the CCPA, like the Colorado statute, like the Virginia privacy statute, that says, if you have somebody's personal information, you have to appropriately store it, you have to appropriately protect it, you have to do a number of different things that ensure that that information is gonna stay private and secure. So biometric specific, biometrics within a personal identification, personal information definition, and then the breach notification statutes. Um, and most states have actually adopted uh, biometric information within the scope of their breach notification statute because mm -hmm. it's so important, right? If your biometric information gets breached, whether it's the actual fingerprint or a uh, algorithmic formula of your fingerprint, that's it, you're done. Yeah. Um, so on those three levels now, you go to the federal government and there's no federal biometric regulation. Um, bills have been proposed, they get no traction. Um, and frankly, I, I just think it's an area where like breach notification, the states are gonna come in and the federal government while being encouraged to do so are just gonna let the states do what they're doing. Um, you know, I feel like in a lot of ways they went way out there on HIPAA made a lot of great progress on HIPAA, did some really, really vital, important things. And I don't know, I don't know if they're afraid that they're not going to get it right again or what, but it's interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. Certainly um, a different change. Certainly a different change. Um, anyway, so states, states, Illinois is the most notable and notorious of uh, biometric statutes. It was, it was uh, actually implemented in 2008 um, and it requires certain policies and procedures to be in place. But most importantly, it requires written disclosure that you're collecting data and written consent from the person who's collecting the data. And that's what's gotten a lot of companies into a lot of problems is that mm -hmm. issue of consent. But just rounding out the regulatory uh, aspects in terms of the states, only three states, Illinois, Texas, and Washington have biometric specific statutes. Um, nine states in 2021 had proposed biometric specific statutes, uh, including New York, including New Jersey, uh, and a number of other uh, states. But those, st those statutes, those proposals all died in committee. Um, and again, it's just kind of that inaction. Um, and as I mentioned before, ordinances within municipalities are being implemented because I think the municipalities are standing by and saying, well, wait a minute, the states aren't doing anything. We got real issues in some of the big inner cities about uh, enforcement and false positives and the like. So we're gonna implement our own ordinances. New York City implemented an ordinance effective July of 2021, local law three it is. Um, and what it requires is that any private um, facility, entertainment facility, um, or uh, uh, entertainment venue, or a restaurant, or a bar that sells food or drink that uses biometrics has to post a sign that they're doing it. Now, you'll say, well, post the sign. Come on. Um, it's a start. That's yeah. all I can say is it's a start. Yeah. And I suspect, frankly, that it was motivated by a number of different aspects of biometric collection, including, frankly, Madison Square Garden. Uh, you know, there's lots of tale about Madison Square Garden. I don't know personally, but there's lots of tale about them using biometrics to enhance security and to figure out who's coming in their facility. Portland, the city of Portland, Oregon, actually shut down biometric use by um, uh, by 
public entities in 2020, and then they adopted a corresponding municipal ordinance in 2021, precluding the use of biometrics by any private institution. So basically, Oregon, uh, the city of Portland, biometrics can't be used at all. So, you know, you have you have regulations allowing it. You have regulations um, kind of talking about how is it that we are going to appropriately regulate it. And then you have regulations completely precluding it. So, so John, you know, one of the things that I hear all the time, and, and I think it would be really helpful for our listeners to understand, is within some of these regulations, we hear the word private right to action. Now, what does that mean, and why is it so important, and why should our listeners care about what a private right to action actually means? Uh, the, the, the private right of action, depending on your perspective, could be either pain in your heart or a big smile on your face. And for commercial entities, it's pain in the heart because the private right of action is the statutory provision that allows private citizens to enforce compliance with uh, the statute if there's a violation. And there's a quite a significant debate about whether a private right of action is appropriate and whether it's an appropriate mechanism to be used for enforcing statutory constructs put in place by the government, or whether that should be done by the AG or you know, a government enforcement agency. So the best example of a private right of action in the biometric area is that Illinois statute. It is a foster, it is a mill for litigation. And so the smile on your face comes for lawyers because it just generates a ton of litigation. And it's litigation across all aspects of economy. One of the biggest cases in Illinois involves Six Flags Great Adventure. Um, and it was out of the Illinois Supreme Court, the Rosenbach case. And in that case, the Supreme Court of Illinois determined that a mere statutory violation, so just the failure to comply, the failure to obtain written consent in that case, or the failure to provide written notice, was enough to sustain a course of action and allow the plaintiff or plaintiffs in a class action to recover statutory damages. Now, you know, that's a very, very significant determination because typically the law is based upon actual injury, right? You can have a cause of action, you can have the most meritorious cause of action, but if you haven't suffered any injury, sure. there's not, a, there, there, you know, what's the motivation to go forward? Right. Sure. And in Rosenbach, the injury was that the young kid, the minor and his and his mother uh, signed up for a pass to get into Great Adventure or Six Flags, excuse me, um, gave the gave his name and they collected his finger thumbprint for security purposes for his pass. But they didn't provide written disclosure of what they were doing with the biometrics and they didn't obtain his consent. And and so. He never went back. He used it once, it was never a problem, um, but the court said just the mere fact that there is a private right of action allowing you as a consumer to enforce this and there are statutory damages, you can proceed and pursue your claim. Sure. And that's, that's, that's a big thing. And that's one of the aspects that makes a private right of action so dangerous because there's a lawsuit now pending in Illinois where um, it's based on fingerprint scans and the employees had to scan their fingerprint on the way in and out of work. And they had to scan their fingerprint to access their pay information. And the trial court determined that 
each incident of a scan by the individual over time is a separate right. injury, sure. right? So, yeah. so if that cause of action is sustained, it's estimated that the damages the company would may face is in the billions, in the billions. I mean, that, that, that's more than pain in the heart. Um, and the privacy statutes that I referenced before in the states that are, are proposing them, some have private right of action because they try to, I guess they see that they don't have the resources on the state level to enforce these regulations, but they want to have compliance because they want to, you know, appear to be moving forward and be addressing privacy concerns. And so they implement the private right of action and let the plaintiff's lawyers and the defense lawyers fight it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very interesting. But, and I will say, and, and so since that Illinois statute has been implemented many years ago, and then litigation after litigation, just winding up all over the place, um, there's proposals in the Illinois legislature, including a proposal to remove the private right of action. That's, that's how bad some people perceive that it is and how business defeating it is perceived because of mere technical violations. You could you could bankrupt mm-hmm. the company. You know, yeah. I don't think anybody would legitimately say bet the company litigation should arise out of fingerprint scans to clock in at work. Yeah. You know, uh, so that that private right of action is a real significant issue among many issues that are that are implemented here um, with respect to biometric regulations. So, so, John, I mean, we've covered uh, a host of uh, topics uh, in a very short amount of time. Before I let you go today, I mean, is there anything I should have asked you that we didn't get to discuss um, that you'd like to share with kind of our listeners? Um, yeah, I, you know, I think, well, first, uh, anybody who wants to get in contact with me can certainly email me uh, or I am old school. You can call me. Um, you go to gibbonslaw.com and you can get my contact information. I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn and all of that. Uh, so that's, that's an easy way to get in touch with me. Um, the, you know, the other issues that uh, I've addressed recently that I think are really fascinating and relate to other areas uh, with respect to biometric is that issue of consent and what constitutes appropriate consent. That hasn't been, with all the litigation that's gone on in Illinois, that issue of consent hasn't been addressed yet. Um, But it's clear that consent is not a one size fits all because in the employment context, you can get consent pretty readily. But in the public context, I'm not sure how you get consent either going into a venue or going on a website. You know, a lot of websites now, uh, including casino gambling websites, test taking websites and the like, all use biometric information to identify the test takers or the people that are using the websites. In fact, there was an issue a number of years ago where uh, in 2020 about the bar exam, uh, because facial recognition technology was problematic in recognizing and verifying who's taking the test it became a huge problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so that issue of consent it becomes a real issue. Well, John, we certainly appreciate you taking the time and coming out and chatting cyber with us today. And um, thank you for coming on Chat Cyber. Yeah, no, it was great. I enjoy it.